I remember that in 1989, there was a, a populist farmers party became part of the governing coalition when the Commerce Party lost. And the agriculture minister, Baby Law, made a point of bringing in his buffaloes to graze in the yard of his government-issued member of parliament bungalow, right? And, uh, and, right. and it was a big deal. It was, it was this sort of, you know, in-your-face, uh, you know, rural virtue trumps snooty deli elite kind of move that was just, you know, purely a play to his farmer base, right? And that, that's what it was. It's a kind of thing that happens in all populisms, right? It's, it's sort of the appeal to the virtues of ordinary people requires, to some extent, putting down the elite. Now, what's interesting is that often it's not necessarily sort of aristocratic pretension that's put down, but intellectualism. Intellectuals are put down. And why that is, intellectualism is a kind of power that ordinary people blame for decisions, perhaps, that they don't, you know, understand. It's like, you know, it's any first generation college goer experiences this with their parents, you know, where the, the parent sees the kid talking about things that the, the parent doesn't understand yeah. and resents their own child putting on airs of superiority based on, you know, sort of college learning, you know, so that kind of thing becomes sort of generalized. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. Last week's fake news podcast was so popular, we're going to continue with a theme that also describes aspects of today's political zeitgeist populism. But before we get into that, let me invite you again, listeners, to review Think Bigger, Think Better on iTunes. I'm giving away free bestsellers to people who support the podcast by doing that. See paulgibbons.net slash iTunes. I'd also love listeners to make guest suggestions in the comments on my website or on my Facebook page. I'm especially interested in the think bigger part of the show. Who are the most inspiring leaders of today? Tell me what you think, and I will get them on the show. Donald Trump, the populist American president-elect, wants to deport undocumented immigrants. Podemos, the populist Spanish party, wants to give immigrants voting rights. Gerd Wilders, the populist Dutch politician, wants to eliminate hate speech laws. Jaroslav Kaczynski, the populist Polish politician, pushed for a law making it illegal to use the phrase Polish death camps, referring to World War II. Eva Morales, Bolivia's populist president, has expanded indigenous farmers' rights to grow coca, Rodrigo Duterte, the Philippines populist president, has ordered his police to execute suspected drug dealers, suspected drug dealers. So populists may be militarists, pacifists, admirers of Che Guevara or of Anne Rand. They may be tree huggers opposing pipeline developments or drill baby drill climate deniers. What makes all of those people populists? Does the word 
even mean anything because it covers such a wide range of phenomena. In my view, populists are defined by the claim that they alone represent the real people, what Germans call the Volk, and that all other claims to power are illegitimate. So they unite the real people against a corrupt, sometimes intellectual, certainly privileged elite. On the other hand, populist movements are rife with animal spirits. They're highly charged emotionally, and they're certainly not always rational. And are they good, bad, necessary, indifferent, or varied in how they interact with something that's of importance to us all, which is democracy, either an aberrant form or a national offshoot of our democratic processes? Today, to discuss populism, we have Dr. Aaron Swamy, who received his PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests include democracy in developing countries, ethnicity and nationalism, political economy, corruption, and state building, and he's published on all these topics. His dissertation combined these various threads through an examination of populist appeals in Indian politics, and he's extended his study of populism to Asian politics generally. His special contribution to the study of populism has been the analysis of what he has termed sandwich coalitions, which is an alliance of the elites with marginalized groups against the middle. Aaron, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. We're going to talk about populism. And I read today that one study suggests that populist parties used to claim only about 5% of the vote share. And now that's risen to nearly 25% of the vote share. So it's a simple question that won't have a simple answer. But what, what is populism and why do you think this is happening? Uh, hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be on. Oh, boy. You just started with the biggest question of all. Uh, let me first say about the number you gave me. Uh, I don't I know if I've heard that, and I don't know what countries or set of countries it refers to. It doesn't surprise me, but I also wonder if there isn't a lot of variation. What is populism? You know, the best definition that I ever read came from Peter Wilds, where he, he says, populism is any creator movement based on the premise that virtue resides in the simple people who are the overwhelming majority and in their cult collective traditions. And in my work, I kind of amended that to say populism is uh, any ideology that believes virtue resides in the, sim in the simple people who have been robbed. And I think that adding the who have been robbed is important because populism is it's an ideology of grievance that tries to unite people in very different circumstances, hence the sort of the undifferentiated subject, the people, against somebody who is not of the people who has robbed them, right? So that there's an idea of loss, and there's an idea that somebody is responsible for the loss, and there's an idea that there is solidarity among the majority of a society who share certain things in common that those who rob them do not, right? So, you know, you could say, you know, you pointed me to a definition by Cass Mudd, in which he says populism is, you know, a framework that sets up an opposition between the pure people and a corrupt elite. That's, you know, similar idea. So uh, these definitions all circle around the same idea going back to the 1960s. 
Uh, do you think when you listen to the term, and, and I mean, you can't really avoid the term if you live in the United States or England right now among commentators, either on cable news or in the mainstream press. So are they using the term, in your view, correctly, people, when it's thrown around the way it is today? No, I'm not sure they are. For one thing, um, I've found, you know, people often just use uh, the term populism to disparage movements or ideas that they think are dangerous or or to sort of lump together anything that's anti-establishment or even sometimes just, uh, you know, on the other hand, sometimes, you know, people, self-identified populists will will limit the term to those things that they think the people want. I think I think it's bandied about a lot. And every once in a while, someone will come along and say, you know, maybe we should get rid of this term altogether. But it, it sticks around because it captures something. And that something is sort of the recurrence in different societies of movements or leaders who speak to sort of a large, one uh, definition says uh, populism addresses a multi-class coalition. So there's an idea of people of different e- economic circumstances coming together around shared grievances. Right? Yeah. So it sticks around. Is it always, um, does it always have to be radical? Is it always a call for somewhat radical change? And I suppose a question, I suspect it's confused because of the same root of, with the word popular. So is it always radical? And do populist movements have to be popular? Well, obviously, populist movements don't have to be popular. You can just look at Occupy Wall Street, which didn't take off. It was, you know, Occupy Wall Street is a followed a classic populist script. We are the 99%. Everyone in the 99% is being robbed by the 1%. It just didn't catch on, you know. Right. Is it radical? One of my favorite quotations about populism is that populism is Janus-faced. It looks both forwards and backwards. It can be both progressive and regressive, right? There are left-wing and right-wing populisms, sometimes uh, representing similar constituencies. You know, uh, Canada uh, famously had, uh, in Alberta, had a, a rural and agrarian far, uh, farmers populist movement, social the Social Credit Party, which was quite right-wing. And right next door in Saskatchewan, there was another populist movement, the uh, uh, Progressive Party, that was quite left-wing and social democratic. And both sort of represented a form of agrarian populism with very similar grievances, but they built on them in different ways. Interesting. So it could be retro- it could be progressive or retrogressive. So it can attempt to derive inspiration from the past, and we have to return to the people's values. That sounds like Nazi Germany to me in a way, but as well, the Volk's value, the real people. And that would be the sort of retrogressive, historical looking populism. And then there's a progressive kind of populism that looks forward. What's an example of that, perhaps? Well, I think the trick to understanding populism is that many of them, most of them are both, right? They, they oh, draw I see they're both, the not either are. Okay. Right. And, you know, uh, many... Uh, take take the, the farmer's movement in the 19th century in the United States, which is in some ways kind of the classic modern populist movement, right? It drew on a lot of nostalgic rhetoric about rural life, but its agenda became the agenda of the progressive movement in the 20th century. You know, it was very forward-looking in terms of some of the things it wanted to achieve, including achieving direct election of senators, including introducing an income tax, lots of the things they wanted represented progress, at least from a kind of a center-left perspective. 
but it wasn't always, you know, couched in terms of sort of, it was couched in, in terms that were anti-finance, anti-industrial, but they weren't really fun to go back. Right, right. Well, maybe it would help. It would certainly help me. I don't. I hope it would help listeners also to look at some things that are happening today, both maybe some political movements and some terms. Maybe let's do some political movements first. So in what ways would, could the Trump movement be seen as a populist movement? Excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's take a step back from the Trump movement, which is uh, to some extent Trump jumped in, in front of a parade. And go back to the Tea Party, the early uh, Obama era. Right? And the Tea Party is, you know, it's a classic sort of conservative populist movement. There's a lot of debate on the left, you know, was it uh, was it really grassroots? Was it so-called astroturf? Because, you know, you get a lot of uh, uh, well-to-do donors and leaders sort of uh, helping to fund it. But that's true of a lot of populist movements, you know. But the sentiments that it, it drew on, you know, I don't know if you remember, but, but it started off with this classic sort of, you know, if you remember the movie Network from the 1970s, Howard Beals moment where he comes out and yells, I'm not going to take it anymore. It starts off with... Uh, I can't remember the guy's name on on CNBC. Starts with an S. Coming out and ranting about Obama handouts to people, uh, you know, uh, Obama rescuing people who have taken on uh, uh, home equity mortgages to buy new furniture. You know, it's like he kind of couched the entire housing mortgage crisis in terms of (laughs) a few slackers. Robbing everybody else's tax money, which we know to be nonsense, but uh, just as- which, was, which was utter nonsense as an explanation of what happened. Yes, absolutely, but it touched a nerve, you know. And and the Tea Party really kind of snowballed from that, and it it, it, it was sort of it was a classic sort of right wing anti big government, anti taxes, anti regulation. The kinds of themes the Tea Party expressed were quite classically populist. You know focusing on local communities, focusing on sort of on uh, individualism and not uh, and not wanting the government to come in. That's all pretty populist, you know. And, you know, I often ask my students, you know, why do you think Occupy Wall Street didn't work and Tea Party did? And to some extent, I think it's because the Tea Party tapped into themes that are much, American political culture is much more receptive to, you know, which is... 100%, 100% yeah. Right. Uh, individualism, where as opposed to sort of the the, uh, you know, the one percent against the 99 percent is, is, is a construct that doesn't resonate in the United States. Well, I don't think Occupy was able to look backward and forward in the Janus like way that you described, perhaps. I mean, Occupy certainly had its mind on, on, right. on a different future, but the Tea Party draws some of its inspiration from. You know the founding fathers, American values. Right. Uh, right. What do they right. say in Germany? Kinderkirche and Kuchen, the the folk, the real peoples, those sort of real American kind of virtues. Exactly. Whereas Occupy right. really was a, you know, you know, a bunch of straggly hippies, uh, according to a right. Right. caricature. Right. Yeah. Exactly, and I think I think uh, you just tapped into something important, which is that. You know, there's a lot of uh, debate over, you know, is is uh, populism primarily economic or cultural in its in its motivation? And I think the the secret to understanding populism is that it tends to wed the two, right? Economic grievances are tied in with cultural motifs, you know, and and that's not, you know, uh, E. P. Thompson wrote this fabulous book on the making of the English working class, in which he talks about the role of culture and identity in sort of cementing working class solidarity in England. 
something that was absent in the United States, right? So it's not exclusive to say populist movements that cultural symbols, cultural uh, identification is important for creating a sense of solidarity, right? But it's interesting because the Harvard, the Harvard paper that I'm going to ask you a few questions about a little bit from the Kennedy School that just came out, I think. Uh, a little while ago, splits those two very much in half and sees them as separate causal factors. And you're actually very much linking them together, which is an interesting point right. of view. I, haven't re- I probably haven't read the paper you're talking about. Uh, yeah, we'll have a look. We'll have a look. You may, yeah, I'm sure you'll be. It's 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 not probably not earth shattering. But what about Brexit? Let's talk about. Well, oh no, you were going to actually. We went back to the Tea Party, but you were going to talk about right. Trump. Right, we, that was right. It. Right. So so you know, jumping forward to Trump. Trump tapped into something, right? And what he tapped into is, and I think it is telling us, you know, it's, it's, it's hardly original on my part to observe that, you know, that there was some overlap in his constituency and in Sanders, right? And, and in the grievances thereof. And that was true even at the Tea Party and, and Occupy, right? They both objected to handouts to Wall Street and all that kind of thing in terms of Occupy and Tea Party. Trump and Sanders were both anti-trade, right? So they were both concerned, at least expressed concern, both spoke to the the travails of the industrial working class in in the Midwest. And so in that sense, and they both ascribed those travails specifically to trade. And so in that sense, there was an interesting overlap. And for Trump, the way he puts it together ties trade and integration together, right? Whereas for Sanders, the way he puts it together Try ties trade and big money corporate greed together, right? Right. So, so there's kind of a different linkage made there. But you know, Trump's populism, if you want to call it that, and you know, there's there's sort of an uneasy relationship between nativism and populism. I don't think you can collapse them into one another, but they clearly often overlap. Trump's populism clearly identified a an ordinary people, which is middle class white Americans who are being robbed due to no fault of their own by forces out, you know, that were unleashed upon them by a kind of a feckless and corrupt elite, mostly feckless more than corrupt. I mean, he keeps talking about the incompetence of the Washington elite and, and, and their sort of inability to negotiate good deals. And sort of, you know, it's really more about the fecklessness of the, of the elite. But it's, an, it's it was an interesting kind of thing, you know. And, and if you go back, the first time I really started to think Trump could win was the first question of the first debate. You know, when both candidates are asked, what are you going to do about stagnant wages? And Hillary Clinton really didn't give a very crisp answer. And Trump said, I'm going to stop trade and stop immigration and bring jobs. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very very clear answer, right? And and grow the shit out of the economy. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Right. Well, you know, hey, a diagnosis has to be plausible or a diagnosis has to resonate. I thought she was terrible on trade. I think she was very credible on foreign policy and on other issues. I thought she was absolutely terrible when she's asked questions about trade. But yeah, because she did, she said stuff she didn't believe, and that was a problem, right? Possibly true. Yeah, possibly true. So what about, uh, let's quickly dive over to Europe. Um, what about Brexit and Macron? Right. Very different phenomena. I will confess, first of all, that I've never been to the UK, right? It's funny because uh, growing up partly in India, I... I probably know more about the UK than any other place I've never been to. <laughs> I, know, I know more English history than I, than I do, you know, almost Indian history, you know. 
Yeah, but they pour it down. They pour it down your gullet from the age of six. Right, right. Yeah, something like that. You know, I mean, uh, but at the same time, you know, I've never been there, so I'm not convinced that there's a. Let's take you know the great historian of American populism, uh, uh, Richard Hofstadter, who's a great historian in general. He he talked about the hard and the soft side of populism, right? There's a kind of a romantic gloss and there's a, a hard materialist economic interest component, right, to what the populist movement is about, the farmers movement in the 19th century. And I think the same is true for Brexit. And I think if you focus on, you know, the most stunning thing that I read about Brexit was, and I don't remember the exact figures, but that real wages in the UK, despite very, very low unemployment, declined more than in any other EU country except Greece, right? Right. Wow. I did not and, know and, that. Uh, yeah. And that that fact by itself says more about what Brexit was about, right? Because Brexit, you know, first of all, you know, you have to start off with a, with sort of the Euro skepticism in the UK all along, right? Right from the beginning. From the very from beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, even in the 70s, and then, and then of course, not joining in the Eurozone in the 90s, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. always a tension between, you know, sort of maintaining distinctive, particularly English identity. Yeah, it's a, it's a British exceptionalism. I mean, it's called L- Little Englanders is the pejorative there. Right, I mean, right. I think they're full of baloney, but, um, but right. anyway. Right, but there's also a hard side to it, you know, and the two kind of come together, mm. soft, the soft sort of little England identity defense becomes empowered by the hard side, which is the real decline in wages, even in the midst of economic growth and job growth, right? And so uh, you, you asked me earlier, I think, uh, you know, if populism can point to real solutions. And one of the things that Brexit points to very clearly is the need for English for British policymakers to address uh, wage stagnation, right? Mm. Yes, yes. What's interesting about it is that because, you know, the main, uh, I think it's, it's telling that for, you know, for Theresa May, uh, the main sort of thing she's been trying to hold on to in the Brexit negotiations is uh, my, uh, immigration and free movement of labor, right? It's the one thing she doesn't want to sign it to buy into even if she yes. even if she tries to stay in in a common market, and the reason for that, of course, is you know I don't view what happened in the UK as being just sort of nativism because you know I mean from one point of view it was primarily about Polish immigration under the EU. You know, if this was just racism, it would have been you know much more. It would have happened much earlier, as it did happen, but it didn't take off in the same way against South Asian immigrants. Sure. There's, a, there's a, the economic aspects of the migration question, I think, are much more central and, and much more salient in, in Brexit and, than people give it credit for. Whether it's the correct analysis or not, I don't know. You know but. Well, one thing that's true about England is it's been uh, both prior to the Great Recession and subsequent to the 2008 Great Recession, it's done better if you look at macro terms. Right. And almost any other country in Europe, I think perhaps the exception of Germany, it fell less far, even despite an austerity policy. And it's grown very quickly, despite what's happened with Brexit, it continues to sort of chug along. And so what people read in the press is, of course, how well the economy is doing and 
how much GNP is growing and how much the city is booming. The city's the financial district right, for, right. for American, American listeners. And they think, gee, I don't really feel like I'm nearly as well off as I used to be. And the electricity bill has gone up from right. this to that, and we're struggling. So there's a disconnect between the, the macroeconomic, right. and, and that's also happened in the United States. So right. the right. stock market's gone from 8,000 to... 18,000 under the tenure of Obama, which is good for lots and lots of people, but you could be well asked, well, why, you know, there's a disconnect between that and the GNP numbers and and how people feel, the subjectivity of their experiences right. as workers and as citizens, as community members. Right. right. And, and, you know, and you have to add to that in both cases, the, the geographic component, right? I mean, one of the things that populism has thrives particularly on kind of uneven development, on a center-periphery uh, cleavage, right? And, uh, you know, one of the things about Germany is that, you know, I guess they had that some with East Germany, but industrial production and growth are much more spread out, right? And I mean, in England, you really have the growth concentrated not just in the financial sector of the city of London, but specifically in the geographical region of Greater London. Yeah. And so the sort of the left-behind regions in the north of England, I mean, I'm, I'm saying stuff that has been said a thousand times, you know, uh, yeah. but, but that divergence of experience clearly feeds into the perception that, you know, the EU is really all about London, you know, and, uh, and you have something similar in the United States where, you know, the Midwest has been left behind. Ironically, the South is, is actually, you know, the growth area, but they, I mean, they're kind of uh, retrograde for other reasons, you know, but the contrast between the fate of the Midwest and the fate of the Northeast, right? Which yeah. is the, the center of sort of cosmopolitanism and finance and all the rest of it, is, you know, part of the story perhaps of Trump, you know. Yes, the bi-coastal elites. And I suppose in terms of economic growth, the Southwest has been right. a great beneficiary. I live in Colorado, which is very purple and it's also a huge beneficiary of it. But you right. know, I've I've been to right. Detroit. I've been to Gary, Indiana. I played in a poker tournament, which is in a place called East Chicago. And uh, I've, I've almost never been in a place which has more, I've seen more economic privation than there. And, and East St. Louis, I've never felt more at risk right. than, than yeah. driving through yeah. East St. Louis. Uh, right. These are places, you know, I sometimes think for every leafy suburb that America has with broad boulevards, right. three cars in every driveway, you should almost be made to take a a virtual tour of some of these places that are they look you know they're indescribably third world looking in terms of the crumbling buildings crumbling roads crumbling infrastructure right. crumbling shopping malls crumbling factories so anyway uh, it's quite quite something but you know those places i mean the, uh, one of the interesting things about those places is that their decline began a lot earlier, and it began, you know, because of the racial cleavages, you know, because of white flight as much as anything else. And, uh, yeah. you know, my, you know uh, my wife's family is entirely from the Detroit area, but they're all in the suburbs, right? They were part of the, the flight to the suburbs. And, um, you know, the suburbs uh, of Detroit are, are still quite prosperous. And, uh, you know, the auto industry is coming back but with, that, with less manufacturing employment and more sort of high-tech and design jobs, you know. And but that area is the area where, you know, there's it was it's really the sort of the swing area for Michigan, right? The Detroit votes Democratic, the far farther reaches of Michigan vote Republican, but the suburbs 
of Detroit are kind of, you know, a swing region. And uh, you can overplay the, the flyover narrative of what's going on in those places, you know, because they're, they're pretty sophisticated and they don't necessarily, you know, sort of have the same kinds of antipathy towards cosmopolitan New York that, that we project onto them, but they do have a sense that their regions aren't prospering as much, you know, which is a different kind of thing. Yes, yes. We talked about two kinds of causes, and I think that'd be an interesting place to stop for a minute. So they're usually split, and anything that divides things that neatly cleaves them into two is going to be weak before you start. Right. But basically, two causes, economic insecurity and cultural backlash. And I guess part of the economic insecurity theory is that there's an asymmetry of benefits from globalization, that it was initially very, very good for consumers, cheap stuff, Walmart, always been very, very good for shareholders because of expansion of markets in the East and cheaper supply chain from the East also. So very good for Wall Street, very good for consumers, less good for the workers who are displaced. But now the consumer benefits have been realized. So I think prices aren't tumbling. You know, there's no apart from Amazon, there's no, there's no, we're not getting cheaper and cheaper goods any longer. So from the point of view of the people who were once benefited from the consumers who benefited from cheaper goods, well, they're no longer tumbling. Prices are no longer tumbling. And so what you're left with is tumbling wages or job losses or communities that are, you know, high levels of unemployment. So that's the asymmetry of benefits theory. Is there, is there any truth to any of that? Well, I mean, I, I think that's probably pretty good for United States and industrialized uh, Western Europe, right? One can draw links between globalization and populism in different parts of the world, but 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 the mechanics would be different. You know, I mean, uh, what are the if you if you look at say Duterte, right? Or if you look at my favorite sort of 21st century populist, who was Thaksin Shinawatra in uh, Thailand, who was a billionaire, the richest man in Thailand, became prime minister introduced a number of welfare policies, then uh, got overthrown because of a middle-class revolt against him in Bangkok, you know, and, and you know, removed from power by the army. And his, pop, his party remains the most popular party in Thailand today, you know. It was just another recent coup against his sister. So uh, when you look at somebody like that, right, I mean, Thaksin came in on the wake, in the wake of the 1997 Asian flu, right, which is clearly... Uh, a result of globalization, but in a different way than you're suggesting, right? So you would have to flesh out the ways in which globalization, you would have to sort of differentiate the ways in which globalization affects different parts of the world to understand the different kinds of populism arising in different parts of the world. Right. That was a very US-centric view. Uh, uh, One corollary of that is that actually the European, because of these more I was going to say superior welfare states, but that, you know, I suppose that nails my colors to the mast. But because of the creation of the better support for disla- worker dislocation, trade there's not been the huge resistance to trade, except for England, right. uh, that there has been in, in the United States, because workers who are dislocated are very much better right. supported when they're dislocated. Sure. And of course, and, and in England, part of the problem was uh, also that some of those supports were cut back. Right. And what about this cultural dimension? So the there's uh it's sometimes described as there's a there's a a, a a cultural, inevitable cultural movement 
towards uh, mass education, post-industrial societies, automation, knowledge workers, etc. And not everybody that doesn't, you know, apply. There's a sort of a counter-revolutionary, a counter-movement, which is people who are older, less educated, white men who are, who've been feel subjectively their subjective experience is that they know their decrease in power and cultural importance so that's part of the theory that they reject progressive values in this kind of uh this inevitable march of the technological society i mean what to what extent does that capture some version of the cultural dimension i think it clearly does but i mean that's that's nothing new right you'd have to go back to you don't have to go back to 19th century England, right? I mean, the, uh, the term, um, geez, why am I blind? Luddite. There, was Luddite. it Luddite? Luddites, right. The Luddite movement, you know, is it's seen as kind of a retrograde reaction to progress, but it's also people trying to sort of save their jobs, you know, craft workers trying to save their jobs by, by, by smashing machines, right? So it's, a, yes. it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, sure. The word sabotage comes from workers throwing their clogs, which were called sabots, into that, machines to stop them working, which I didn't know. I that I did not know. That I did not know. Sabot, sabotage is throwing their clogs into machines just to break them. Interesting. I will undoubtedly start quoting that without credit, crediting you. <laughs> I, would, I, would look, I would look it up first, but I think I'm right. <laughs> it sounds erudite when I say it, right? Right, exactly. It sounds yeah, perfect, in fact. With a scratch, among other things, which is great. You know, you can blame the French for it. So this cultural shift away from traditional norms, away from traditional values, that's where we were. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. The value issue in, in the U.S. is uh, murky, right? Because if you look at the Midwest, I'm not sure the value component is, is, is really all that strong in the mm-hmm. support. You know, the value component is much more sort of in the South and the and sort of the evangelical uh, support base and all that. And there's been a lot written about, you know, and, and often, in fact, from quite prosperous communities. I mean, the, the people, the evangelical community is not, is not economically uh, deprived, right? But, you know, there's sort of a sense of uh, localism, maybe, that would be the charitable way of putting it, that sort of the resentment of the growth of the federal government and uh, localism, small business ethos, celebration of small entrepreneurs, a lot of that kind of fits in, the, in with it as well. You know. Well, very good. Well, let me advance another sort of causal theory through what So someone says, well, why don't established parties right. pay attention to the discontent, the grievances, as you put it, of people? How do these, why, do, why are they abject failures? And I guess one theory that's advanced is that they respect, if you want, institutions and institutional constraints like the European Union or the IMF or NAFTA or political parties or uh, allegiances within political parties, and they're unwilling to break with the institutions to satisfy the grievances of the voters. Is that is that something accurate as a hypothesis? Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, that may be giving them a little bit too much credit, right? I mean, just uh, let's just take the, the Republican Party for the, for the United States. They've certainly been willing to bend institutional constraints for the, uh, you know, repeatedly throughout the Obama era, most notably in uh, sort of holding off on for a year on even holding hearings on a Supreme Court nomination. But that was just, you know, 
one of many examples. So uh, it's, it's not clear to me that establishment parties are necessarily always respecters of institutional constraints. But what they are is they're the product of a particular pattern of interests that they reflect. And it's very hard for parties to give up established patterns of support. Right. That's really more patterns of patterns of influence, patterns of support. It's hard for them to abandon those. There's this conservatism built into those relationships is what you're saying. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I suppose there's one thing is that our populist sort of anti-institution, not, you're saying they're not always anti-institutions because it's easy to downplay institutions and their importance and their value in the short term. And we're going to tear down, what is it, drain the swamp and, you know, throw the bums out as the as the rhetoric goes without downplaying the long-term consequences of not having institutions, which, you know, some of which safeguard our health and our water and our educational infrastructure and our infrastructure and all of that. So... Populists certainly are not, aren't necessarily anti-institutions. Typically, they tend to sort of distinguish between good, true institutions and bad, corrupt ones, right? I mean, take, uh, yes. take the Tea Party. You know, it's like the Tea Party's entire rhetoric is built around the idea of defense of the Constitution as they understand it, right? So right, at least right, rhetorically, right, right, right. At least rhetorically they're, they are uh, in their own estimation the ultimate institutionalists. Now, you know, one can debate whether whether their understanding of the Constitution is a valid one, but that's a different debate. Interesting. And what about two other words that are tossed around a lot when we're talking about populism, anti-intellectualism and anti-cosmopolitanism? Those are two other right, right. Fla- flavors, if you yeah, will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, I think, is really important. You know, I mean, Step back from both of those and, and, and put them under an umbrella term, which is anti-elitism, right? Right, right, right. Populism is almost quintessentially anti-elite, right? And I like to tell this story, you know, sometimes, you know, when I was in, uh, in my 20s and living in New York, and uh, I was living in Brooklyn, and I, I sprained my ankle one Saturday night, I think it was, you know. So, I had, you know, I couldn't go out very far, so I, uh, I bought the Sunday New York Times and went, we could do what you could do in New York on a Saturday night, I went to a bar, put my foot up, and was reading it, right? And uh, it was kind of a working class, young people's bar. You know, it, it was in, in Park Slope, which is kind of a mixed middle and working class neighborhood. And there, this young woman uh, sitting next to me turned to me and said, excuse me, could I look at the funnies? So I very quietly said, I'm sorry, the New York Times doesn't have funnies. And she said to me, and I, I will quote it directly and uh, hope it doesn't offend anyone. And you're an effing brain, right? You F word again, right? I was stunned. You know, I later on, I became friends with her, you know, but it was just. And it was actually a setup, I realized later, because there's this whole, in New York has this entire sort of symbolism around people who read the Daily News and people who read the New York Times, and Daily right, News right, Funnies right. and the New York Times doesn't, and, you know, and all, it goes along with like, you know, do you drink beer or wine or do you like, go to the baseball game or, or the opera, which is, you know, a, a whole bunch of really silly dichotomies. I do neither. You know, it comes to baseball games and opera, I don't like either one, you know, so I don't know what that is. So there's that kind of thing, and it's about a whole bunch of things. It's partly about people looking down on us because they think we're better on us, that kind of sort of small d democratic impulse that says, look, you know, you're no better than us, which is good, you know, which is, ha- which is healthy, and it's a part of populism, you know, uh, sort of a, a commitment to social equality, if you will. You know, that's the positive side of it. But the other side of it is specifically, number one, uh, anti-intellectualism, right? 
And uh, Hofstadter, again, you know, wrote a, a famous book on anti-intellectualism in American life. And it goes very much with the sort of the democratic ethos, you know, because in the United States, you know, it's, it's common, but it's not just the United States, you know, it's like anti-intellectualism, you know, Indian populisms, Indian populist movements are often built around anti-intellectualism because India has, you know, a very distinct, historically distinct right. intellectual class, right, which were differentiated by caste even, right? So populist movements are specifically anti-intellectual methods. I remember that in 1989, there was a, a populist farmers party became part of the governing coalition when the Congress party lost. And the agriculture minister, Baby Law, made a point of bringing in his buffaloes to graze in the yard of his government-issued member of parliament bungalow, right? And, uh, right. and, and it was a big deal. It was, it was this sort of, you know, in your face, uh, you know, rural virtue trumps snooty Delhi elite kind of move that was just, you know, purely a play to his farmer base, right? And that, that's what it was. It's a kind of thing that happens in all populisms, right? It's, it's sort of the appeal to the virtues of ordinary people requires, to some extent, putting down the elite. Now, what's interesting is that often it's not necessarily sort of aristocratic pretension that's put down, but intellectualism. Intellectuals are put down. And why that is, that's yeah, a good question. It has a lot of explanations. One of them is intellectualism is a kind of power that ordinary people blame for decisions, perhaps, that they don't, you know, understand. It's like, you know, it's any first generation college goer experiences this without parents, you know, where the the parent sees the kid talking about things that the, the parent doesn't understand yeah. and resents their own child putting on airs of superiority based on, you know, sort of college learning, you know. So that kind of thing becomes sort of generalized, if you will. Yes, 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 yes. Cosmopolitanism is slightly different, which is that it has very much to do with sort of localism, local cultural virtues. Cosmopolitanism is associated with rootlessness. It's associated with uh, lack of loyalty to one's own community, right? I think I think there's a lot of issues with, with sort of group membership and loyalty tied in with anti-cosmopolitanism as well. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't recognize within myself any patriotism or nationalism right. or or localism as, as well. But it sounds like such an effete and poncy things to say to use right, an English exactly. expression to say I'm a citizen of the world. But you know, I'm eligible for I think four right. different passports, and I sort of live in the United States and spent half my life here and half my life in Europe. But I feel very much that I'd have more in common with a university professor from Istanbul or a university professor from Bangladesh than I would have with one of my neighbors, perhaps in, if I were living in Oklahoma or someone who is a, an industrial right. laborer in Oklahoma. So my, if you want, my cultural milieu is a very kind of global and thing. And I'm just the sort of person that's very easy to despise, I think, if you're a localist in your viewpoint. But Theresa May said, if you're she said something quite contemptuous. She said, if you think you're a citizen of the world, you don't understand what the word citizen, I paraphrase her, she don't, you don't understand the word citizen, what that means. And I think that's representative of the sentiment, right. I think. 
Well, good. Well, you have a theory, so and I, I suppose we should think about ending with this. Let's see if I could put this together. You have a theory called the sandwich theory of of populism. I think it's probably worth touching on that before okay. we before we wrap up because that's sure. Something- There's two separate things. One is sort of I, I talk about something called sandwich coalitions, which are not unique to populism, where right. uh, you know sort of alliances between the extremes of a hierarchy against the middle. You know, and you can find this. In international relations, where you know great powers ally with small states against regional powers, you can find us in sort of the appeal of commoners to the king against the depredations of the lord. You know, which is a theme that's you know that that was quite common in European history and uh, particularly in the era of state building, right? So it's a recurring kind of alliance building motif, and I, and I argue in the case of populism that that there's sort of two different strands of populism. There's, I call it an empowerment strand, which is really sort of upwardly mobile groups wanting to get access to power. And there's a protection strand, which is protecting people from harm, right? They're often tied in together in one movement, but they sometimes split into competing strands of populism, which is something I talked about in India. And the way they split is through sandwich coalitions. Sandwich coalitions, defensive elites faced with populist movements basically come into sort of the leaders of sort of these classic populist movements that tie the middle and the poor against the elite and say, hey, you guys in the middle don't really represent those people down there. You're their enemy. We'll protect them from you. And they come in and kind of provide more, a more paternalistic, well, which is this is a word uh, another scholar has used for the same thing, approach to welfare. And so... That's kind of you could you could look at Trump this way, couldn't you? I mean, he he's a billionaire himself, and he's friends with many. Uh, he has Mnuchin on his cabinet. Uh, he's the Koch brothers would be, I think they've been rather silent or something like that. But he certainly represents the interests of the wealthy, despite his protestations, and he certainly has white working class support, particularly against probably not in the middle class, although it's yet to be seen right. if he does anything at all for the American middle class, but certainly against the bi-coastal elite, certainly against the educated, certainly against the experts, right. certainly against policy wonks. So there's certainly some people who are getting squeezed in the middle. I don't I don't think it's against the middle class. I don't think. But anyway, what do you what's your thought about Trump sandwich? The Trump yeah, sandwich, that's very good. <laughs> my, uh, my, my thought about Trump is actually slightly different, which is a lot of his constituency are are in fact significantly drawn from the middle class, you know, sort of insecure, of insecure are, yes. middle class. And uh, to some extent, he's actually scapegoating the people below them, right? So he's kind of doing a, the reverse of a sandwich coalition. He's, he's, he's scapegoating particularly Latino immigrants, but, you know, less obviously, but yeah, implicitly yeah. also African-Americans. The, the real sandwich coalition in American politics is the Obama coalition, right? The Obama coalition, which draws on elite educated professionals, the poor and minorities against mostly the, the old sort of, uh, and less so on the old middle, uh, white middle class and working class, right? So that's kind of- I guess you could look at the Trump phenomenon as actually, I stand corrected, as actually appealing because he did win a majority of white male yeah. middle class voters, yes. didn't he? And so absent his showing among minorities and and he did win, right. be hard to say, but among very affluent voters. Uh, so, yeah, you yeah, could say a, he forged a very a broad yeah, coalition of right. Americans. It's a, it's a middle, it's a, it's a populism of the middle, not a populism of the top and the bottom, is what I would say. 
That's interesting. That's very interesting. I stand corrected there. Well, look, this has been a marvelous discussion. Uh, Are there any final remarks? Where do we go from here, I suppose, would be a good way to finish or anything like that? What happens now? Want to put your crystal crystal ball out? (laughs) My my suggestion to people wringing their hands about populism is to remember that, uh, you know, the the, the sort of the classic book on populism, which was uh, written in the 1960s, began with a play on uh, on Marx's chain, uh, the opening line of Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto, which is a specter is haunting the world, it's a specter of communism. This book began with by saying the spect- a specter is haunting the world and it's a specter of populism. That was 50 years ago. You know, <laughs> this is a recurring thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that's good. That's probably a good place to end with some reassurance that uh, we've been here right. before yeah. and uh, it's not the first time. I want to thank you. Thanks, really, for your insights and for your time. Thank you, Paul, for having me. This was a lot of fun. In this super fun part of the show, I get to talk about great books I'm reading, and there are two especially great ones out right now, both on democracy and on liberalism. The first is by the Financial Times Washington correspondent Edward Luce. It's called The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And it's a cracking analysis of our current turmoil in just a few hundred pages. See my website for a link review. The other great book is from one of my philosophy professors, Anthony Grayling. It's called Democracy and Its Crisis. Grayling is perhaps the best known of contemporary political philosophers. And his book traces the history of democracy from Plato to Locke to Montesquieu and to its first implementations in the UK and subsequently, of course, in the United States and France. Where did the ideas like separation of powers come from? How did they arise? Why, until the 18th century, was democracy used as a term pejoratively rather than, you know, seen as today the finest and greatest and the apex of what we can achieve politically with one another? So both two really, really fascinating books, and both are 200-page reads. You can read them in an afternoon if you uh, get down to work on it. So uh, thanks for checking those out, and I look forward to talking next week. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.